one by one, Egypt's pyramids were robbed of their priceless antiquities. In the wink of an eye, the world was flooded with thousands of worthless counterfeits of Egyptian artifacts, sending their value plundering down. Dealers and the Egyptian government were going crazy. To choke the problem before it got worse, Egypt sought Interpol's help. Suave G-Man Jack Harlow was sent to Egypt to investigate the racket. One night after supper, Harlow stepped out for a walk and was fatally stabbed in the back. Whoever killed Jack Harlow was never found, but that's Egypt for you. Locals were suspicious, governments and businesses corrupt, and for the cost of a hot dog, anyone could be fried like an oyster. New York City. Just 21. Shapely Myella Williams was the latest addition to Neely Cairo's burgeoning company of international investigators. Gifted with limited psychic talents, Myella could remote view. With this power, although meager, she looked into locked drawers, sealed vaults, and the unopened mail of others, sometimes miles away. Before she could harness her extrasensory talents reliably, however, Myella had years of practice ahead. A graduate of the Crab School of Secretarial Arts, Myella could type 45 words per minute. She filed with the confidence of a 40-year-old and lived with her bedridden mother, a half-Angolan, half-Portuguese tarot card reader in Greenwich Village. Hearing the teleprinter receive an incoming message, Maella leaned in to look at the text and could not believe what she saw. Two international investigators. Stop. Attention Neely Cairo. Stop. Jack Harlow of Interpol is dead. Stop. Repeat. Jack Harlow is dead. Stabbed with black ornamental dagger. Stop. Send help to Giza. Stop. Help. Stop. Jim Albright, Chief of Police, Giza. Stop. Mayella was your classic parvenu. This was her first day on the job, and she was in over her head. She hadn't had a coffee, and already a man was dead. Mayella wondered if every day at International Investigators would be as exciting as this. Although she was inexperienced and as green as a blade of freshly cut grass, she had the right stuff. You'll want to keep her on your radar because Mayella is a live wire ready to explode. As though her life depended on it, Mayella ran down the hall carrying the grim missive. She handed the note to Neely Cairo, who was sitting quietly in her personal sanctum. The news was bad. Neely knew Jim Albright and Jack Harlow. She met each on assignment years ago. News of Jack's demise hit her like a freight train. A minute later, after hitting the intercom, Lars LaGuardia, the logistics and disguise master, stood before her, notebook open, pen ready. The next move was to call her son, the amazing Buster Lee. The Mysterious World of Buster Lee, presented by Adam Ive.
the sensor. The Nile is famous. When translated, Nile is more than a river. It means denial. It's the defense mechanism built into the psyche of residents to avoid the unpleasantness of reality. Outsiders are not privy to such sapience. Foreigners, mostly Westerners, say, ah, the pyramids, the Sphinx, the belly dancers, the camels, the dust, the spice markets, the dates, the smog, the oranges, the spies, the traffic, the fez-wearing monkeys, and the corruption. Oh, the corruption, baked into every nook of the culture. Few places were as exotic as Egypt. Behold, the mighty Nile, the cradle from which civilization was born. In Victorian times, the paddle boat was the safest way to see the ancient treasures of the country. A slow journey up the Nile filled a Westerner's mind with visions of Cleopatra, King Tut, Lawrence of Arabia, or Queen Nefertiti. But things change. By 1982, cows saw more humane treatment at the abattoir than humans sailing the Nile. Nevertheless, given the panic expressed by the Egyptian antiquities industry, Buster Lee, Lars LaGuardia, and Beck were tasked to douse the counterfeit scheme with cold water soon as possible, or there would be holy heck to pay. Yet this day, aboard the SS Pharaoh, built in 1932 and equipped with a small canvas swimming pool that leaked, three super sleuths from New York sailed up the Nile River to Giza. Wearing brown bucks, chinos the hue of nutmeg, a dark sack coat over a sky blue cardinal, over a Mackinac navy vest, over a sand colored button down shirt, and a wristwatch inherited from his late uncle, Buster Lee sipped his cream soda slowly. Beside him, leaning on a rack holding one of 10 lifeboats, was Lars LaGuardia. As much a creature of habit as Buster Lee, Lars wore a crumpled khaki jacket with matching slacks, a white shirt, a rep tie, and scuffed white bucks, the sort Bing Crosby would wear. After supper, on the second night of the journey, Buster Lee and Lars met debutante Sullivan Albright, or Sully, as she preferred to be known, strolling alone on the deck. Sully, who lost her mother after contracting a deadly flu in Africa, was seen by many as a complete conquest and true beauty. After a round of disposable formalities, Sully, wearing a cloche, a cardinal the color of fresh cream, a string of pearls, and spectator pumps, said her father was Jim Albright, Giza's chief of police. Jim Albright, born in Idaho, was head investigator in the ongoing counterfeit antiquities racket that consumed Egypt. Daddy has no leads, but as far as I'm concerned, said Sully, the bandits are nothing more than grave robbers, and darn dirty grave robbers at that, I tell you. As fiery as a firecracker on the 4th of July, Buster Lee could see Sully was miffed. Although Sully was well-versed in the jargon of the intellectual crowd at Brown, her own intelligence was intuitive. Two steps away, Beck growled as three strangers, clad head to foot in black cloth bags, scampered by suspiciously. Were they men? Were they women? Who knew? Turning to Lars, Buster Lee said, that's not a good sign. Beck only growls when he smells something fishy. 
Using a tiny brush designed for collecting evidence, Buster Lee bent down and carefully swept up a thimbleful of the detritus left in the wake of the three passengers. After arriving in the dusty city of Giza and settling in at Hotel Nufu, Buster Lee, Lars, and Beck went to meet Sully's daddy, Jim Albright. As chief of police, Jim Albright's office was housed in Precinct 9, employing over 25 policemen, guards, medics, barbers, and assorted assistants what was essentially a tent city was also home to some 3,000 enemies of the state. Protected by five gun towers and numerous electrified walls, 155 tents served as the jail cells, offices, mess halls, cafeterias, hospitals, showers, nail salons, dental offices, interrogation rooms, a gymnasium, and, for good measure, a red light district. Stepping into a tent, Buster Lee saw Albright for the first time. He was Jack and the Beanstalk tall. Raised in the Midwest, Jim Albright was a widower who came to Egypt by way of the Central Intelligence Agency. Jim loved Egypt for its history and for the cultural opportunity it afforded his daughter, the eye-pleasing Sully. Studying Buster Lee, Jim said, I worked with your mother and holy buckets if you're not the spitting image of her. Buster Lee went flush. Sizing up Lars next, Albright said, And you must be Lars LaGuardia, Neely's master of masquerade. I can't imagine what's in your suitcase. Reaching out, Jim offered the secret handshake of the Knights Templar to Lars. Reaching down and scratching Beck's chin, Jim said, And this must be the famous blue healer Beck. Beck affectionately buried his nose in Albright's boot. A flap opened, and Sully strode in, all speck house and plywood. Looking at Buster Lee, she smiled and said, I see you've already met my daddy. In the tent adjacent to Jim's, a meeting was scheduled. Everyone was there. In addition to Buster Lee, Lars, Beck, Jim and Sully Albright, were Sergeant Newberry, a real countryman and head of Pyramid Security, and Marcel Romano, the corpulent 62-year-old proprietor of Little Wing Imports. What can be said about Marcel? He was the sort of character who dreamed of money floating in the sky and landing in his piggy bank. Sweating beneath a fez and dressed in a Nehru jacket the color of a sugar cookie, Marcel loosened his collar and said, as leader of all illegal activities in Giza, I'm an influential and respected man, but it would not be worth my life to touch even a grain of sand at the foot of the Pyramid of Cleopatra. There's a terrible curse on such things after all. Besides, everyone wants to blame me for the counterfeit censors, but these days I mostly deal in macaroni, so the locals can eat their daily ration of koshari. Although I've thought of trafficking in Nubian escorts, What about you, Sergeant Newberry? said Buster. Any strange going-ons at the Cleopatra Pyramid? Anything of interest is hidden beneath the pyramid centuries ago. No one gets in or out without Harry Gripweed's approval. Holding his picture, Jim Albright said, Gripweed is young but comes from fine stock. Although these days he's not looking too well. In a moment of thought, 
Buster Lee leaned across the desk and picked up a drawing of the deceased G-man, Jack Harlow. How square-jawed, rough-hewn, and movie star handsome was he? Looking at Albright, Buster Lee said, did Jack Harlow leave anything? Beyond a corpse, just these receipts. Buster Lee gave them to Lars. When the meeting ended, the participants agreed to reconvene next day at the Pyramid of Cleopatra. On the way out, Jim Albright invited Buster Lee and Lars to a dinner party in honor of his daughter Sully's return to Giza. The next morning, Buster Lee, dressed in a white galabia and a turban, climbed on a camel, one of six in the caravan, and began the slow trek towards the pyramid of Cleopatra. Beck was put in a basket with a chew toy and placed on Buster Lee's lap. Soon enough, the squad arrived at the pyramid. At its side, away from the tourists, they met Harry Gripweed, head of pyramid security. A thin, unkempt young man with hollow cheeks, hair like hay, and dressed in decomposing clothes the color of eggnog, he was a sight for sure. Gripweed introduced himself and presented the storage space as though he was P.T. Barnum. Welcome to Cleopatra's warehouse, where thousands of priceless antiquities are kept. As you know, smugglers have taken much, including the last of Cleopatra's priceless censors. The missing censors were news to Lars and Buster Lee. They shrugged in disbelief. The censors were covered in thousands of precious stones of indescribable beauty, gifts to Cleopatra from the King of Morocco. In the antiquities market, the censors were considered invaluable. While he pored over the video rental receipts, Lars discovered Jack Harlow had incurred dozens of late fees. In 1981, before video streaming, late fees were part of video rental culture. Everyone got hit with late fees. Turns out, Harlow rented dozens of documentaries on Egyptian history from Jamba Video Rental, one of six stores in Giza. Three miles away, Buster Lee, Lars, and Beck visited the Jamba video rental Jack Harlow frequented to learn what they could. Cramped with the kind of junk tourists love, there were 80 documentaries on the pyramids and their priceless treasures. While looking through title cards, Marcel Romano tapped Buster Lee on the shoulder. Looking for something, Buster Lee? Fanning his sweating face, Romano was the last person Buster Lee thought he would see in the store. I need something to watch, Mr. Romano. Looking in the display bin Buster Lee was sorting through, Romano said, There are dangerously ignorant people living here, prone to all manner of suspicions. Be careful, boy. Approached by Lars, who had that, Are you ready to go? look in his eye, Buster Lee turned around to say goodbye to Marcelo Romano and saw he was gone. In their suite at Nufu, Lars, Buster Lee, and Beck ate dates and other Egyptian treats while watching the grainy documentaries Jack Harlow found so fascinating. Studying the black and white footage of the Great Pyramid from 1930, Buster Lee was haunted by Marcelo Romano's words. There are dangerously ignorant people living here, prone to all manner of suspicions. Be careful, boy. 
Be careful. After booking a small boat to take them to the lagoon outside the Pyramid of Cleopatra, Buster Lee, Lars, and Beck met Oscar the Boatsman from the Congo at Giza Docks. Nearly an hour later as I entered the lagoon, Oscar warned them to stay away. That place is possessed. We no go. We no go. Reaching into his bag for a sterile collection device, Buster Lee gently scooped up some sand and put it in a fresh evidence bag. After he was finished, to Oscar's relief, Lars pushed away from the shoreline with an oar, and they returned to the city. Inspired by the Titanic, Hotel Nufu was a stunning example of empire design. Sitting in the spacious hotel suite and holding a magnifying glass, Buster Lee examined the sand he'd collected earlier that day from the lagoon. Comparing this sample to the sand collected from the strangers in black cloth bags on the SS Pharaoh last week, Buster Lee was convinced both samples of sand were one and the same. Scratching his head, Buster Lee said, Blistering barnacles, Lars. If I hadn't seen this with my own eyes... Buster Lee bathed and put on the formal white dinner jacket he and Lars had brought for formal nights like this. Sitting at the vanity in her room, Sully prepared for the dinner party. Sully, a modernist, put her casual clothes aside and wore a dress more appropriate of a cotillion ball. Looking for a hairpin, Sully opened a drawer and found six counterfeit Cleopatra sensors at the bottom. Shocked at the discovery, Sully called her father. Daddy, she said. You won't believe what I found. After she hung up, Sully studied herself in the mirror. Wearing a gown, swimming in jewels, Sully looked like a princess from the royal court. Even she was gobsmacked. The Albrights lived in the upscale neighborhood of Zamalek, built on an island similar to Manhattan, with quiet leafy streets, 19th century apartment blocks, art galleries, restaurants, and cafes. Zamalek was the favored place to live among Giza's foreign expatriates. For security reasons, the Albright estate was set on a gated property. There were Egyptian guards everywhere. Inside the walls were gardens holding exotic flowers, imported trees, fountains, hedges, and trellis. After welcoming Buster Lee, Lars, and Beck, who wore a small navy ribbon around his neck in honor of the night, they were introduced to Egypt's acting governor, Admiral Tag Halsey. Afterward, everyone sat down in the dining room and the staff began serving. As quick as a cat catches a mouse, a dagger was hurled through the air, hitting Admiral Halsey in the back. He slumped forward and never said another word. In a sea of chaos, Jim Albright stood, raised his fist, and pledged to catch the assassin. I will catch the monster who did this to Admiral Halsey and see him hang. No stranger to unexpected violence, Lars leaned into Buster Lee and said, someone doesn't want us snooping around. Aghast, the morbidly obese Marcel Romano, the macaroni importer, said, 
That dagger could have been for me. Do something. Anything. After the medics took Admiral Halsey's cadaver away, Sully, accompanied by Busterly and Beck, fled upstairs to her room. Leaning over the chest of drawers to show Buster Lee the counterfeit censers, Sully clasped her mouth, then let out a scream. Someone's stolen the censers! Someone's stolen the censers! The censers are gone! Running to the window overlooking the docks of Giza, Buster Lee said, Let's not lose our minds now. Does anyone have a boat? Piloted by a cloaked Egyptian, a diesel-powered boat ripped out of the docks of Giza. Waiting for Buster Lee's group to board, Oscar the Boatsman turned on the engine and said to Jim Albright, Where to, Mr. Albright? Holding a rifle, Albright, all action, said, Follow that boat on the double, Oscar. In the ensuing madness, Buster Lee discovered Sullivan and Beck were missing. Peering through the binoculars, Lars said, I see them. I see Sully and Beck. They're on that boat ahead. With his pudgy fingers, Marcel Romano grabbed the binoculars from Lars and said, I see Gripweed, the security chief from the Cleopatra Pyramid in that boat. He's got Sully and Beck hostage. Grabbing a machine gun, Marcel Romano shot at Gripweed's boat. Buster Lee said, put that down, Romano. We want Gripweed alive. But it was too late. Sully and Gripweed were hit. Marcel Romano's torrent of deadly machine gun fire had done its damage. Looking through the binoculars, Lars saw Gripweed and Sully slump like bags of potatoes. His stomach dropped to his feet and he felt sick. Falling from the bullets, Gripweed grabbed the power lever and his launch came to a stop. Oscar brought his boat alongside Gripweed's and Buster Lee jumped triumphantly in. Seeing his daughter, covered in red stuff, lying on the floor, Jim Albright said, Is she alive? Feeling her pulse, Buster Lee said, We better get her to a hospital soon. Scouring Gripweed's boat, Lars ran out of the hold with Beck and said, Where's Gripweed? After looking everywhere, Lars said, We have a new problem, Buster Lee. Gripweed got away. At the Giza Harbor, the barely conscious but still lovely Sully Albright was loaded aboard an ambulance. Looking as captivating as ever, she said, I'll be all right, Daddy. It's just a nick. Jim Albright turned to Buster Lee and holding back in his arms said, The river police arrested all the smugglers and have locked them up for the moment. Holding the phony sensor the size of a golf ball, fat man Marcel Romano tossed it to Buster Lee. You can keep it, kid. My macaroni is worth more. Buster Lee looked at the sensor and tossed the worthless trinket on the ground. What are you doing? said Lars. What do you mean, what am I doing? said Buster Lee. Throwing the sensor on the ground is littering. Without being told, Beck retrieved the sensor and dropped it at Buster Lee's feet. Looking at Lars, Buster Lee disposed the counterfeit object in the trash. As the MacGuffin left his fingers, Buster Lee said, Is anyone hungry? Because I am.
All this excitement stirred up an appetite something crazy. Hankering for a large, mouth-watering bowl of kashari, the popular street dish of Giza, Marcel Romano took Buster Lee, Lars, and Beck to Daisy's, a crowded street market nearby. Of course, Marcel Romano always thought of himself first, and at this point in his life, he knew how to appear altruistic. But getting three seats together at Daisy's was another thing entirely. It demanded a kind of aggression that would leave Minnesotans appalled. They did, however, find a table. After waiting nearly 50 minutes, an elf-like waiter named Chick arrived. Knowing Marcel's appetite, Chick took the order and returned with enough koshari to feed a football team. Sensing Buster Lee was a vegetarian, Chick carefully pointed out the ingredients. Putting on his glasses, the diminutive server said, Let's see, there's onions, I think that's garlic, there are lentils, chickpeas, um... What about the macaroni, you idiot? said Marcel Romano. Kashari has macaroni in it. Putting a spoonful of the kashari in his mouth, Lars said, Holy knickerbockers, Buster Lee. There is macaroni in it. Wiping his forehead, Marcel Romano loosened his tie and said, I may be a coot, but I try not to lie. At least not too much. Denouement. 9.30, the following morning, Beck scuttled out of the Hotel Nufu unnoticed and hopped aboard Oscar's boat with a group of tourists. Arriving at the Pyramid of Cleopatra 20 minutes later, Beck snuck into the ancient structure and silently clambered down the stairs to the warehouse below. Ten times as big as a football field, the warehouse was dimly lit by openings every 250 feet that allowed dramatic shafts of lighting. At the back, in lot 237, covered with hieroglyphics and painted blue, white, and gold, was a half-open tomb containing what appeared to be a mummy. Wrapped in an ancient shawl, the color of porridge, lay the emaciated body of a young man. Standing on his hind legs, Beck stuck his snout in the sarcophagus and saw a gaunt face, hair like hay, and dressed in ragged clothes the color of eggnog. Beck tipped his head and heard a faint breath. The sound spooked the usually brave little blue healer out of his wits. Thinking not twice, Beck scampered out of the warehouse never to enter a pyramid again. You've been listening to The Mysterious World of Buster Lee, presented by Adam Ive. Mystery World theme by Oliver Wickham. Follow us on Instagram. Go ampersand pod underscore planet. For show notes and merch, go to podplanet.org. Special thanks to Tattoo Sound and Music. The Mysterious World of Buster Lee is written and produced by podplanet.org. 